This, I think, is really important for early stage HR leaders is build your culture and build your work like the product, which means make a roadmap by quarter for 18 months and talk to the people, understand the pain points, and then say, these are the first four things I'm going to work on, then this, then this, then this. And obviously, I didn't just create that myself and decide on it, right? Like I got buy-in and support and alignment. But once I decided, I codified it, I published it, and I marketed it. So even if people didn't agree with my order of priority in terms of what I was tackling, they understood my methodology, they understood the roadmap, and then they understood where their particular pony was. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Anna Binder, Asana's head of people. Anna joined Asana as its first HR executive back in 2016, when the company was just about 100 people and the product was beginning to gain traction in larger organizations. To begin today's conversation, we go back to the earliest days when Anna first took on the role, starting with how she prioritized the initial things to tackle as a new people exec and combing through a slew of opinions that bubbled up from other folks at the company. Anna sketches out some of the quicker wins, like getting clear about explaining comp to employees and some of the longer tail projects, like revamping their recruiting process. Next, we widen out our lens to topics that Anna is well-positioned to share her thoughts on as an HR exec, but that leaders all across the org will find valuable. She shares her tactical playbook for creating a culture of feedback for not just low performers, but high performers too. Anna also unpacks her methodology of conscious leadership and how the best leaders always interrogate how the opposite might be true. She also shares her insights from working on Asana's executive team for nearly seven years and how to build habits to make sure this group is a healthy nucleus at the center of the company. We end with a rapid fire round with some quick hits tackling onboarding, all hands meetings, and mentorship. I really hope you enjoy this interview and honest perspective on creating a thriving culture. Now my conversation with Anna. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So wanted to kind of kick off by talking about what Asana was like when you got there over six years ago. I think it was about 100 people. And maybe you could kind of start by setting context from a people lens, what was going on, and we'll use that to jump off and talk about the last six plus years. Sure. Sounds good. Six plus years. My goodness. So as you mentioned, when I joined Asana, we were about 100 people. Before I can really talk about framing where we were from a people perspective, I think it's valuable to take a look at where we were from a business perspective. On the product side, things were working and customers wanted it, which was great and was creating problems because as our customers were growing, 
they were deploying Asana into larger and larger organizations, which revealed pretty significant performance issues we had in the product. And it was nothing short of slow. So the engineering team was on a year plus long journey to essentially re-architecture the product to make us ready for bigger and larger enterprises. And what that meant was for a year, we had no new features because everyone was working on that re-architecture. And on the go-to-market side, we were just starting the process of like top-down selling. Our product-led growth had really driven most of our revenues. And it was a major shift from a business perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a cultural perspective. Then, so that's the backdrop for coming in to this organization that had about 100 people. I was really the first HR executive, the first HR person. There was recruiting in place, but it was the typical and appropriate type of recruiting that startups do, which is kind of like hire as many great engineers as quickly as possible. And then the rest of the HR responsibilities were distributed across the organization with different people looking after different parts of it. With that context, how did you work to prioritize and figure out what to do? I would think there's a zillion different things that you could do coming into that first people role. And so maybe what do those first few months look like and how did you figure out what to do in what order? Yeah. Well, first I'll just explain. I, I was coming from organizations that were much larger. And one of the things that was beautiful to me about, there's so many things that were like a perfect fit for me, for Asana at the time. And one of them was that the founders, Dustin and Justin, were deeply committed to this concept that the investment that you make in culture is a driver of business outcomes and that culture drives business and business exists to achieve your mission. And to partner with Dustin, uh, the CEO on that, was really, really attractive to me. The other thing that was attractive to me was the opportunity to take everything that I've learned and all the mistakes that I had made over the many, many years of doing this type of work and just do it right and do it better. And going back to a small organization like that gives you that opportunity. So I always try to encourage HR leaders to not be married to this concept of size and like that you need to go bigger each step in your career. And so we were 100 people. And one of the beautiful things about that is that I got to go, I think I, in the first three months, I met with, I don't know, 75 or 80 of the 100 people. And I just asked them what they were working on, what problems they were solving, what felt important for me to focus on. And so I, not only was it a data-driven approach, it was an actual like live interview type of approach. And from there, combined with my own assessment of the organization, I was able to build a roadmap. And this, I think, is really important for early stage HR leaders is build your culture and build your work like the product, which means make a roadmap by quarter for 18 months and talk to the people, understand the pain points, and then say, these are the first four things I'm going to work on, then this, then this, then this. And obviously, I didn't just create that myself and decide on it, right? Like I got buy-in and support and alignment with Dustin and the rest of the leadership team. But once I decided, I codified it, I published it, and I marketed it. So even if people didn't agree with my order of priority in terms of what I was tackling, they understood my methodology, they understood the roadmap, 
then they understood where their particular pony was. Do you know what I mean? Like they knew that it was coming. So there's a bunch of things to kind of dig in there. When you talk about establishing the roadmap, like if I were to look at the document, what was the structure of it? What did it actually look like or what was in it? So two of the main things that bubbled up really loudly early was that in order to scale, we needed to shift the way that we recruited from this sort of startup, all hands on deck, let's recruit as many engineers as possible to a more professionalized and operationalized recruiting model. How many roles? What kinds of roles? What does your pipeline look like? How many interviews can you do in a week? What kind of sourcing do you need? How many interviews are you scheduling? How does that translate into how many coordinators you need? Really like just organizing it. What kind of candidate marketing do you need? What's driving your close rates, your offer close rates, right? And so that was one thing to shift away, like build an operation around it. A second thing that was very loud from the engagement survey that the company had done, that Asana had done before I got there, was people didn't trust, understand, or believe in compensation at the company. No one had done anything to reduce trust, but there was no philosophy, there was no cadence, there was no understanding of why decisions were made, there was no machine around it. and. Compensation is a very one-way street, right? Like the company has a lot of information and the employees have very little information. So building some muscle around that and a program around that was critical to people having confidence. So those two things, the compensation piece was really only like one quarter's worth of work. The recruiting was a four or five, six quarter journey, but I was able to show like, these are the two things I'm starting with and here's what you can expect in terms of outcomes by when. And how did you approach establishing some sort of framework that then made it clear that those were the two things to focus on? And I'm particularly curious about it because I think in the realm of people, there can be a little bit more judgment and instinct in certain parts, maybe versus like running a go-to-market organization, where sometimes inputs and outputs aren't as clearly coupled. And so I would think, you know, if there hadn't been a formal people function and you have a rapidly growing business, you talk to 70 or 80 people, and then you probably have dozens of things. And you as somebody who's quite experienced, there's probably dozens of things that are bothering you that you think could be made better. And then you have to align to the point that you made before you came up with the roadmap with, in this case, I assume at least the co-founders about how we're going to do this in what order. And so what was that like? And how did you, like, what was the framework that you used to align around the focus on at least these two things to start? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, I think your point is fair in the sense that there is art and science and it can seem really squishy, but I don't think it has to be that squishy, right? I took those 75 interviews and I, I was like a user experience researcher. I cataloged them and organized them and said, 40 people mentioned this. And, you know, they may have like used different words, but I cataloged them as comp related. And here's another thing that came up. It was about career and career mobility. Another topic that came up was just burnout. I'm tired. I have way too much work. But if you looked at the teams that were really burnt out and tired and overworked, they were 
the same teams that had the most open recs, right? So it's very tied to the ability to recruit. And this is where your judgment comes in, right? Like I can have 75 conversations, but I need to be able to catalog them. And that was only one input. Another input was the engagement survey. And what are the things that the engagement survey shows? And you can't just take that data 100% at face value. You have to overlay some judgment on it. Like I knew that from a benchmark perspective that we were paying competitively, yet the employees didn't feel confident. And so that's a shame. Like that's a waste. And so I quickly moved that up because the Venn diagram of it being a big problem and a relatively easy problem to solve means that, hey, let's move it up on the roadmap because it's a quick win that is hurting a lot of people right now. One of the things that the last comment gets at, and I think this runs through a lot of people work, is the role of narrative and education as opposed to maybe what we're doing or how we're treating someone. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, meaning if you have a bunch of conversations and you think that there's a compensation issue, in competition, there was maybe a hundred different things that could be going on. But if you do that work and you find actually, hey, we're paying people in the top 1%, 5%, 30%, whatever. So I actually feel very confident that that's not the problem. But maybe the problem is just we're not explaining and educating and setting a narrative around compensation that's effective. And so do you think a lot about of the role of making a change to some actual piece of the company versus working to change a narrative around one of these people pieces? I think it's a great question. I'll say a, a few things. The first is perception is reality, right? And you could have a great comp program, but if people either don't know about it or don't understand it or don't trust it, it doesn't matter that you're paying in the 1%. Right? Like, so you can't ignore that. You have to pay attention to that. The second thing is whether it was my first quarter or now where we're almost 2,000 people, I often think of my job as a chief communications officer. I spend so much of my time listening and talking to employees. And sometimes I'm talking one-on-one, -on -one, but these days I'm more thinking about how are we communicating to the masses. And the thing that I remind myself over and over again, I need to say it so many times and I need to share the same information so many times until I'm almost annoyed by the sound of my voice or how many times I've done it because that's what employees need and that's what employees deserve. So I very much think about the narrative. And going back to your comp example, I think comp is an, a perfect case study there because comp is an awkward, uncomfortable topic for everyone to talk about. And so success for me was like, demystifying it and de-awkwardizing it, right? And just like, let's put it out there. I also found, relatedly, is that different people have very different levels of understanding on how equity works. So one of the things I did was invest in education at two different levels. And I allowed people to opt in to the level that they were comfortable with. So I had a pure 101 version where people got to learn at the very basics of how a stock option works and how, what an exercise price is and what a cap table is, all of these components and what Radford is and what a range is and all, you know, everything. 
And then there was a different version that was also, it was just like one or two clicks, people who had more experience. And separating those groups meant that the people who really needed the basics had a safe space to ask those basic questions. And some people were like, oh, well, that's too much. And like, that's a lot of work for HR. And wow, that's so over the top. And honestly, I mean, Payroll is such a huge component of your operating expenses. I think it's crazy not to do that. When you think about the most talented people that you've worked with, do you think they generally want the same thing out of work? Or most people want all sorts of different things? Mm. I think that there's probably a, a Maslow's hierarchy there. I think most of the people that I've worked with that are outstanding share a few different things. They want to achieve their goals. They are whatever the mission is that you've set in front of them or that you've collectively agreed to. They're very motivated to get there. They want to get to the top of that mountain. So that's number one. A second characteristic or need, I think, is meaning, right? Like, does my work matter? And am I working on something that matters? Can I connect my calendar and my tasks all the way up to like our purpose and our mission. And I think that feeds a very deep-seated need. And then I've really come to believe in this combination of curiosity and humility. I think it's very easy to work with people who have deep expertise and experience and have really seen a lot of movies. But the ones that I think are the most successful are the ones that are humble enough to be curious that, hey, I'm awesome and I have great experience and I've been successful. And there might be a different way to achieve this goal or there may be a different way of doing this. And it is that the combination of that humility and curiosity that leads to even more learning and more improvement. So those are the three things that I have come to believe about the pattern matching. So how did those three things ladder into what you started the whole conversation talking about, which is culture? And what is a great culture? And how do you articulate even what culture is? Well, I articulate what culture is. If you can imagine the whiteboard behind me, at the top of the triangle is the mission. Like, why are you here? What is your purpose of your organization? And the second part of the triangle is your values. How do you commit to showing up with each other? And I, I choose those words deliberately because we don't always get it right every day. And sometimes I say, I, like, I make more mistakes on our values before nine o'clock than anybody, right? But I'm committed and I'm committing to fixing things when I mess them up and continuing to try. And then the third part of the triangle is the 10,000 decisions. These are the 10,000 decisions that all of your employees make all over the world every day to move the business forward. And this can be like, hey, an obvious decision, like we're going to use certain language in our job descriptions to make sure that we're attracting people from all different backgrounds so that we can build a representative workplace. But it also, what features are going to go into your free product versus your paid product? Those are critical business decisions. And those decisions that you make to help achieve your mission while being in line with your values, inside that triangle, to me, that's where culture lives. And I think that the other important framing of your culture, I can't emphasize this enough because I think people tend to forget this, is that 
Your culture exists to move your business forward. It doesn't just exist on its own. Your culture exists to move your business forward. Your business exists to achieve your mission. So when people talk about like a good culture or a bad culture, my lens of judging a culture is, is it serving to move your business forward? And how do you know that? What are the questions you ask? Or what is the data that you're looking at that makes you confident that the culture is serving the mission? So the example that I'm going to give you is specific to Asana. And by the way, our mission is different than your mission and another company's mission. So our culture is different. And the culture that we have here might not serve to accomplish or achieve another company's mission. But one of the things that is really true at Asana is we try to make sure that the culture mirrors the product attributes. So one of the things about the Asana product is that you have clarity on who's doing what by when, and you're reducing confusion and work about work through that by using the product to move work forward, to collaborate on different tasks, projects, or initiatives, you have that clarity. And I actually think that when I think about the culture and the work that we do inside of the company with the employees, I think one of the things that really matters to people is, am I doing duplicative work? Does this task that's keeping me up at eight or nine or 10 o'clock at night, does it actually matter? And ensuring that people have clarity on their role and their objectives is something that I spend a lot of time on and is very, very connected to how we think about the product. So much so that I think that our salespeople are better at selling Asana, the product, to our customers because they are using, we're obviously an end-to-end customer, they're experiencing it in their day-to-day work. And so if our salespeople can naturally, frankly, without too much enablement, sell that story or sell that dream to our customers or are doing it effectively, they will close more deals. We will achieve our ARR numbers, which will put the product in more the hands of more customers. Connecting and threading that through I think about a lot. And I see it in our engagement surveys. I think the most important questions in an engagement survey is, do you understand how your work connects to the mission of the company? And it is fascinating to me that, and it goes and puts and takes, right? Like, and sometimes different groups have different high scores on that. But it's one of the first questions that I look at the results on and I dig into. Are there other questions on the engagement survey that you tend to find have outsized signal for you? Yes. Does my manager give me constructive feedback that helps me grow? And I'm actually on the board of Culture Amp, so I get to see this through the lens of being a customer that uses an engagement survey and then obviously at the board level. But I think it is fascinating that the data shows that high performers are twice as motivated by constructive, and by constructive, we mean negative, constructive feedback than the average employee. And because in the land of startups and fast-growing companies, a lot of people, managers, are 10-minute managers, meaning they're brand new to the craft of management. They don't know how to give good constructive feedback. And that, like, it's such a virtuous cycle, right? Like, if I invest in my managers in teaching them how to give constructive feedback, in turn, they will do that for their highest performers, which will then in turn motivate those people and grow them even more. When I think about as an HR leader, ROI, 
that is a place that's like a high leverage place that I can spend my time on. We could spend hours talking about how do you create a feedback rich environment, or let's say you run an engagement survey and you score low in that specific question. Is there any shortcuts or things that if a founder or head of people wants to move that number up that they can do around getting more high quality, critical feedback to employees? I'll say a couple different things. I do think starting at the top here really matters. So I think that the highest leverage thing that a CEO can do is ensure that he or she is doing that real time with his or her directs. And giving constructive feedback is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for everyone. So sometimes I quip, like, if you're not uncomfortable giving feedback every single week, you're not doing your job. Because if you have a bunch of high performers, which you should have, and like high impact people, then it's your job to be giving them feedback regularly, which means you are uncomfortable every single week. So one of the things your CEOs can do is as they're reflecting, like on Friday afternoons and they're finishing the week, just was I uncomfortable this week giving feedback? And if they were, they're helping to support that culture. I think next order, and you know, if you've built an organization that has high levels of psychological safety, and then the CEO could be doing that one or two clicks down from their directs, and that's a gold standard. One of the things an HR person can do is go do a little bit of auditing. I'm a believer that once or twice a year, depending on what works for your organization, you need to have written performance reviews of some sort. Like, I just, I'm going to put that there. I strongly believe that. And I think as an HR person, you can go to the executive team and read what they are writing about their directs. By the way, I'm making a simplifying assumption that everyone is awesome, that you've moved out anyone who's not high impact and that everyone there is really outstanding. So since I'm assuming that, and I know that those high-performing, high-impact people really want constructive feedback, it's really easy for me to do an audit. And I can sit down with the head of marketing and say, hey, let's take a look at what you wrote about each one of your six direct reports. And is there constructive feedback in there? Is there feedback that was uncomfortable to write and is going to be uncomfortable to read? If not, hey, you're probably not doing your job and I'd like you to take another draft at this before you deliver it. So I wanted to loop back on something that we actually started the conversation with, which is you talked about when you joined Asana, you did a bunch of one-on-one conversations. And I assume you were talking about a couple of the ways in which you get a pulse for what's going on. One is engagement survey. And I assume still to this day, you have specific one-on-one conversations that give you data to make decisions as to what needs to be fixed. I'm curious, any thoughts on what you should be asking in those conversations to get the most kind of nutritious insights out of them? Yeah. So first of all, we have a very intentional framework around this. We call it the voice of the employee. It is modeled after what many organizations do around the voice of the customer to make sure that you're bringing the outside in in terms of the product that you're building. There are qualitative, quantitative, bottoms-up and top-down elements of the voice of the employee. There are obvious things like the engagement survey, the exit interviews that we do for people that are leaving. But there's also bottoms-up qualitative inputs like 
the HR business partners or the people partners that are out in the organization talking to folks. We have six ER employee resource groups, and that leadership group helps provide and bring a, a different lens to the table. I'm constantly making sure that the programs that we're building and the insights that I'm considering are through the lens of what the company's goals are. So I actually think our 10 annual objectives, I think of them as an independent component of the voice of the employee. And I, I need to, everything that we're building throughout the year, I think about how is this supporting one of the objectives and is this making it easier for our employees to achieve their goals? But going back to your question around like, what kinds of questions am I asking? So first of all, what are you working on? Like, what are your personal goals this quarter or this month? And what have you achieved? Like, what was a win recently? And I'm not interested in what they think about culture or HR or a program. Like, I want to know about their work. Like, what feature are they working on? What customer are they working with? What marketing program are they launching? And then another question I I ask is, how have you personally grown recently? What's stretching you? What is making you uncomfortable? There's a few different ways to ask that. But it, it allows me to understand on an individual level where the stretch or the stress points. And then the third question is, is like, what's something that's getting in your way? And like, what do you think is one thing that we should get faster at or get better at or build or improve? And when I say we, I mean the company, not the HR team. And that sometimes there's themes there, but a lot of time I get surprised. I will also say for companies that have a global footprint, it is invaluable to get out there in the field and meet employees in your field offices to get the perspective of your company through that lens, because it's often like a completely different view. What about, you mentioned this a second ago, as a part of the voice of the employee, how do you run exit interviews? Well, once upon a time, everyone who left the company, I had lunch with them and I tried to create a space for them to give me real talk. And that's when I did that at the beginning, I like or in the early days, up to several hundred people, I did that every single time somebody left. One, I was genuinely interested. But also, when somebody leaves the organization, they are your alumni. They're part of your community. They refer you employees. They might become customers. And I want them to know how positively I feel about them leaving. So it used to be in interviews, and I'm very aware of my own bias and or anyone's bias going into an interview like that. So I would ask the same set of six questions. Over time, we moved that really into a form that people would fill out. And we'd ask them questions about their experience, about their growth, about what advice they had for their manager's manager in terms of leading the group. And then there was a period of time where every time one of those came in, I would take a look at it and figure out whether I wanted to have a follow-up conversation. Now we're a couple thousand people, so this is done through the people partner team. What do you think are some, in sort of this sphere of people stuff, What do you think are some things that a lot of people think are important problems or significant problems, but actually given your incredible amount of experience, you found they're actually not a big problem. And for me, the place that I go is like, if you're a really good primary care physician and someone comes in, There's a lot of people who come in and they have a little bit of a cold and they're worried at something very serious. And you're like, no, you think this is a big deal, but it's not. 
And then there's other people that come in and you're like, no, 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 this is a big deal. And a lot of that comes from training, comes from experience. And I think, again, in, in some parts of the in people work or the people function, there's so many problems all of the time. There's always someone that's unhappy about something, right? There's always an angry customer. And so are there things or themes that come to mind that like when you talk to other people leaders and they're bringing you a problem and you're like, listen, I've worked at a lot of companies at all sorts of scale. Don't even spend time on it. It's, you know, like those type of things. I'll give you two extremes and then I'll talk to you about how I think about it. If there's people on your accounting team who are scoring low, for example, on your engagement survey on risk-taking and innovation, that's good. I don't want those people taking risks. If your enterprise salespeople don't have confidence in the roadmap, that's a major problem. So those are two examples on the edge. The thing that I want to point to in answering your question is not all feedback is created equal. And I think that's part of what you're getting at. And I want to parse, hey, there are people in your organization who are highly engaged and have high impact. There are people in your organization that are low engagement, low impact. They're probably leaving, right? Like if you look at the, actually the culture amp, it's the people in the green versus the people in the red. The data shows don't listen to the people in the red because you've already lost them. You're not going to impact them. And so I really try to think like, who are the voices of the people who are high engaged and high impact? And how can I take their input and allow it to shape my roadmap or my prioritization? Another way of saying this is if my low impact people don't feel like they have career growth opportunities at the company, that's okay. So let's not react to them. It's an interesting jumping off point to maybe talk a little about the role of conscious leadership and how that's influenced the way that you think about your people work. And maybe for those that aren't familiar with it, you could kind of give the Cliff Notes version of what it is. And then maybe are there ways it expresses it yourself specifically in your sphere of work? So I think about leading consciously as a few different sort of fundamental commitments to myself and to the people that I work with in terms of how I show up. The first is being intentional about checking my body temperature, I call it. Like, how am I going into this conversation? Am I feeling defensive? Am I feeling motivated to prove that I'm right? Am I feeling deficient or defensive or... um? I don't know, it can even be uh, tired or hungry or hangry, right? Like just checking in with myself. Am I below the line or am I open? Am I curious? Am I ready to co-create a great solution, even if it means that the best solution is not my favorite solution? So that's, there's a few different principles. That's one. Another one is that I probably employ in my work at home life every single day. When I get annoyed with something or impatient or misunderstand something, I say, how can the opposite of my story be true? How can perhaps there be a different version of what I'm experiencing? So a few different tools, shared communication principles, shared commitments. That's a little bit of the 101. 
I feel like for the first year that I was at Asana and I was learning some of these principles and I was trying to employ them and I was awkwardly stumbling through them, but slowly and surely getting better at them. I used to joke, like, I feel like I'm still getting more out of the company than I'm putting into it because it was a journey. The way that I, I've spent most of my career in enterprise software companies, very high ASPs, very traditionally competitive with other companies to get at the same set of customers. And I think that that led to an, an internal environment where people were very committed, committed to their version, committed to their solution. And a lot of conversations were a little bit like, <laughs> were more arguments than conversations and that made the strongest or loudest voice win. And when I came to Asana, it's a very different culture around, let's start with the goals. Let's get clear and aligned on our assumptions. And then let's explore the solution set so that we can choose the best solution, like collectively choose the right solution for the problem, given the assumptions and the options. And let's be clear on who the decision maker is, but let's make an agreement that stakeholders will be heard and like genuinely heard, not just, yeah, I'm waiting for you to be heard and then I'm going to talk. Setting it up in that way, in that framework, and that expectation of each other, the idea was that once a decision got made, you could trust or believe that it was it is the right decision, and you can get behind it, even if it wasn't your favorite outcome or your the way that you've done it before. And that's a very different way of going about problem solving. So switching gears just a little bit, and you touched on this as we've been going, but I'm curious if anything else comes to mind. Are there different meetings or rituals on a weekly, monthly, annual basis that you've implemented as a people leader that you find maybe are a little bit unconventional or different than other companies that have had an outsized impact on your work? I'll highlight three. And obviously this has evolved over time, but I think that three have endured. The first is no meeting Wednesdays. There's no meetings on Wednesdays. Maybe there's not like zero meetings, but there are very few meetings on Wednesdays. And that matters because great work happens in meetings. This is not a statement of like meetings are bad. Great and important decisions are taken there and great co-creation happens there, brainstorming, all of the things. But I think it's pretty powerful to have a day when you are allowed to have the stretches of hours of time to get into your flow and into your special zone where you can crank work. Whether you are an individual contributor or a senior executive, that really matters. And this is something that has existed at Asana since the beginning of time and something that I didn't really realize the value of until I got here. I sometimes joke that the thing that drives engagements like consistently high at Asana is in part people understand why their work matters and in part because they have all day on Wednesdays to actually get it done. So that's one. The second one is we have, we call our executive team company planning. And in part because I don't love the word executive because it creates this like, I don't know, division between me, I'm an executive and you're not. So I know more or my voice is louder when Really, I'm trying to create an environment where 
the best ideas get surfaced and win, not the highest ranked person. And I don't mean to be cute. Everybody knows who the quote unquote executives are. But I think language plays an important role in reminding people of what our values are and what our culture is. And calling the executive team company planning helps to do that. So company planning is CP for short. And so we do a monthly event called Cup of Tea with CP. And it really is an opportunity for any employee to ask any question across a host of topics. And sometimes the theme of those cup of teas are really around mental health. Like I remember the ones that were at the beginning of 2020 and where we were all struggling and employees needed to hear from their leaders that the weeks are okay, but the days and some of the moments are really dark. And I think part of coming together as a community, as an Asana community required that. And that's what the shape that those cup of teas took. And then you know, we have a cup of tea after each one of our earnings calls to add, like have real talk about the results and where we were successful and where we need to improve and how that influences the next quarter. So that's a second one. And then a third one is I'm going to actually go to our weekly company planning meeting, our executive team meeting, where we spend the format is one or two topics that we go deep on. So we don't do like an around the room of like, hey, here's what I'm focused on. We use Asana for that. Like you can get an update async. There's no need to spend time on that. We really try to go deep on one or two topics and we'll invite people in. But the first 15 minutes are always the same. The first 15 minutes is feels like, how are you feeling? Let's check in. What's going on? And that has two components to it. The first is if there's something that's distracting you, like put it on the table and let's just get it out because that allows you to be more present in the room. The second reason that it's powerful is because leading a company can sometimes be lonely work, right? It's particularly true for the CEO, but it also can be true for the rest of the executives. And so that 15 minutes of checking in on our feelings allows us to deepen the bond and the relationships with each other just for a moment. On the point about opening exec team with feels and maybe some of the conscious leadership stuff, I think there are probably people that think that that type of stuff is incompatible with high performance. And I think that I guess that your experience, probably having worked at companies that would laugh at the idea of conscious leadership, particularly maybe 20 years ago, can you explain why they're wrong? or maybe what they misunderstand and actually why it's such an important input to performance at Asana? Sure. I'm going to focus my answer on the senior leadership team because I think it's easiest to grok there. And it might be where at some companies it would get rejected the most. I really believe your first team is, if you're an executive, your first team is that team, right? Like that is team number one. And high performance and high impact is not just a functional sport and it's not just an individual sport. In order for the company to be successful, you need that team to be successful. And the company that you, that team leads is going to have highs and lows. It's going to have, we're amazing moments and we're going to have like the, oh no, it's over, we're crashing moments. I think that that resonates with earlier stage companies pretty fundamentally. And in order to weather those storms, those highs, those lows, those in-betweens, 
You need to have high, high levels of trust amongst the executives that sit on that team. And there's a lot of different ways to build that trust, right? You build that trust sometimes with accountability and with reliability and by performing. But you also build that trust by letting people in a little bit to say, I'm scared about this thing, or I don't know, the site went down again, or my head of performance marketing resigned, or whatever it is, just like a moment of vulnerability to help build trust in a way that will serve you so well down the road when things are hard. And I actually would argue that it is the most important for the executive team, but it's really important for the board as well. There's such power in that vulnerability. And so the second thing that it does is it supports real talk. If one of my colleagues on company planning sees me making a bad choice or going off the rails on something or maybe having a blind spot on something, those are the people that I want to speak up to me, to point it out to me. And it's a lot easier to hear constructive criticism from somebody else that you deeply trust, that you feel like really has your back, that has let you in to their dark moments and their vulnerable spots. So I can't pitch this enough. I can't imagine going through it for the long haul without having that connection. On this theme about functional exec teams, in my experience, spending lots of time with CEOs, it seems like a vast majority of time, there is some form of dysfunction (laughs) in their executive teams. And it's one of those things that intellectually seems relatively easy and pragmatically, I think, is very hard. Why do you think that is? Or what are the types of dysfunction that you think are most common? You talked about trust. And maybe you could kind of expand on why that goes off the rails so many times or just what are the other things that you tend to see in working with other CEOs, in working at a lot of different companies, like the patterns of dysfunction, specifically of executive teams? And do you think it's different than the dysfunctions of other types of teams? Mm, That is interesting. Patterns of dysfunction. So I'll start by saying the executive team is unique for, I think, what are couple obvious reasons, right? Like that's where the buck stops. That's where the ultimate accountability is. The second is that it's some of the only teams where each person runs a very different function versus on the head of marketing has a bunch of people on her team that run different functions of marketing, but none of them are running HR, finance, or legal, or product, right? Like it's much more homogeneous in that way. The third thing I'll say is It is ultimately at that level that when we come into company planning with that meeting, we take our functional hat off and we talk with each other like company leaders. So it's not my job to be the one that talks about culture and the head of revenue's job to talk about customers. We're all talking about all of the things And I never want somebody to show up in that meeting just thinking about their function. Do you think that's one of the biggest gaps between, call it a VP and a chief this or a director of that? And it's the ability to sit outside of your function? Yes. When I think about interviewing senior leaders, I think about, by the time I interview them, I assume that they've been vetted for their functional expertise. And I really am looking, can you be a company leader? Can you talk about things 
Can you really sit with that different hat on? And not everybody can do it. Not everybody wants to do it. Not everybody's walked the miles or kilometers to be able to do that. But I think it's critical. So one question about that, and then I want to go back to the different dysfunctions of executive teams. When you're interviewing, you're on the loop, let's say for a CFO or pick any exec role, and you're trying to evaluate, can they be a company leader versus a functional leader? Are there specific things you're asking? It's, again, by the time they get to me, they've been really vetted. And sometimes it's illuminating and, frankly, fun to not ask them questions and just see what questions they ask, right? Like a company leader in whatever function has a tremendous amount of questions about the company, about the business. An amazing CFO could fill an hour of interview with questions about the culture. An amazing revenue person could spend an hour asking questions about the product. Like that's the way they're wired. That's the way that they think. That's when they're assessing a really, really big decision for themselves. You can tell by what they're asking about how they're wired and what they're thinking. So let's loop back and just close out the thought around what gets in the way of executive teams or what tends to lead to dysfunction and what you've observed. So allowing the trust factor to fester right? Like there are signs of lack of trust. And I think of it as a primary job of mine, the health and well-being of that executive team. So if I see things that are like feel like cracks in the trust of that team, I make it my highest priority to think about, to talk about, to partner with the CEO on. So that's that trust piece. I will also say that sometimes, especially in earlier stage companies, the executive team is collection of people that are there in part because of path dependency. They're there because, well, I've always been there and the CEO is not willing to have the tough conversation that it doesn't really make sense for them to be there anymore. Or they negotiated something on the way in and it's still like that. I think that if you can't answer questions about the composition of the executive team with integrity and in all hands, like there's funky reasons, then something's probably wrong. I will also say, I don't know if this is a dysfunction or just a plain bad use of time. I've been on executive teams where we spent hours and hours and hours in a mature company talking about detailed product development decisions at the executive team level. And I think that's a bad use of time. There's like, I shouldn't be in that conversation and the CFO shouldn't be in that conversation. The right people should be in the room for that. And I, it's a strange hierarchical decision to say, oh, the most important product decision should be made at the executive team when really the most important product decisions should be made in a group of people that are best suited for it, regardless of their level. So as we get into our last little bit of time we have together, I thought we could kind of do a rapid fire round where I'll kind of throw out a topic and hopefully you can kind of teach on it or explain in a few minutes and then we'll go to the next one. So the first one is what are the most meaningful career programs you've built out or what are a few of the ideas if a head of people or a CEO gets feedback that we're not providing career growth, what are some of the things that they should consider doing? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, can I grow my career here? And do I have a feeling that I'm going to grow here is one of the most important 
drivers of engagement. And if I think of high growth companies, the things that the people are missing is that your career growth is coming every single day in the learning and stretching that you're doing by doing your work. And so I personally think that one of the most powerful things that I can do is make sure that managers know how to talk to employees about how, hey, this program that you're working on, this project, this launch, this is your career growth. This is what is making you great. People way too often associate career growth with a promotion or a raise. But often it's the thing that you're working on that you're getting better on, that you're gaining expertise on. But employees don't always connect those two things. What are the most important parts of the onboarding process that you've developed at Asana? We spend so much time as an industry on recruiting. It is probably the topic that startup CEOs are spending an outsized proportion of time on, how hard it is to hire no matter what kind of market you're in. And it is confounding, confusing, and like amazing to me that people don't invest as much time, energy, and sweat, and tears into onboarding people. If you think about this decision you made to hire somebody, you want them there for three, four, five years. You know, don't worry about them being impactful in month one or two. Invest the time to onboard them. Get them out early stage with customers. Have them understand the product vision and roadmap. Get them deeply inculcated to the culture and the values. Give them room to make relationships. You will delay their impact by a week, a month, or maybe even a quarter. But because you've invested in their onboarding, their impact will be much more durable for a longer period of time. And so what are a few of the parts that are a part of your onboarding program that you think maybe are a little bit unique or particularly impactful? So one of the things that we ask our new hires to do is go to the all hands or the town halls of several different departments that are adjacent to them. So if you're in product marketing, go over to the brand marketing town hall. If you're in engineering, go over to the design one, just to get a flavor of things that are close to your work, but not in your day-to-day work. Another thing that we do is we do a monthly evening with the founders and the executive team that is really a smaller sacred space for, uh, for the new hires without all of the people that are have been here for a long time. And in the early days, this was, I mean, it took the form of a really small, intimate dinner. Over time, it became much more of a larger scale kind of, I don't know, happy hour type thing. But what our goal there was to demystify leaders and to remind people that corporations can be cold, kind of cog in the machine type of places where you can become complacent and that we don't want Asana to be that way and that our leaders were accessible and we will give them real answers to tough questions. In what ways do you use Asana at Asana that others might not know about and find value in implementing at their startup? If you, there's a couple things. I have a project, a one-on-one project with every one of my direct reports. And inside of that, at the top of it, is what their top priorities are for the quarter or for the half. And then beyond that are the topics, like sort of the operational topics that we're dealing with on a regular basis. But more often than not, at Asana and at other companies, those topics are tasks that are, have other people on them. 
And so I try to be, you know, there's some stuff that I work on that is very confidential and people shouldn't see, but most of the stuff that I work on can have visibility. And I, I invite many more people into those tasks for visibility than you would imagine. Because I think that that visibility allows them to have the context to do their jobs. And it like allows us to move fast because I don't need to debrief everyone on every topic. There's a lot of visibility through Asana and through those projects and tasks. What does a great all hands look like or what are the most important parts of an outstanding all hands? A great all hands looks like it's not something you've required people to go to, but it's something that everyone shows up to. So meaning you've created compelling content and real talk in that all hands that motivate people to go. A second sign of a great all hands is that there are so many questions at the all hands that it is you've run over and you need to like figure out a way to handle those spillover questions. A third component is that the questions are hard, but they're not mean. If you at your all hands, you don't have a lot of people asking questions, what should you do? Great question. The first thing that I would do is sometimes people need to get warmed up. So sometimes I plant a few questions that I know are on people's minds, but maybe people are afraid to ask. So I'll I'll either ask somebody to ask them or I'll ask them myself, like of ourselves. The second thing that I've gone to recently and kind of reticently is using, I think it's Slido, it might be Slideo, which is an opportunity for people to ask questions anonymously and upvote them. I was really against it for a while because I was so committed to encouraging people to speak up. But then, two things happened. One, we just grew so quickly that a lot of people don't know each other. And it created like a sense of like, "Mm, a little bit of fear. I don't know if this is the right question, that kind of thing. And then the second thing is the pandemic happened. And so many things, the pandemic impacted so many things, but it was harder to get to know people in the pandemic. So when you're like, we were hiring 20 people every week for a long, long time. And it meant a lot of people were strangers. And so now I've embraced anonymous questions. Okay, last couple ones. How do you help managers get better at parting ways with employees who aren't performing? I, well, first of all, I remind them, you are amazing. You're an amazing leader. You're an awesome manager. You're amazing. And your team is amazing, which means you deserve amazing. And you've got this person right now that is not having high impact. doesn't mean that they're a bad person. doesn't mean that they can't have high impact somewhere else, but you are depriving yourself and your other teammates of amazing. So you have to take responsibility here and do something about it. The second thing that I like to say is, and this is me really more on the inspirational piece of when you close your eyes and you think about everyone that reports to you, are they amazing? Do you close your eyes and say, hell yes, that person is amazing. I would go to the moon to prevent them from leaving. I want them here. I need them here. They are everything. If the answer to that question is anything but hell yes, then it's probably a no and you need to do something about it. Now, what does do something about it mean? First of all, it means providing clarity, providing clarity on expectations and giving feedback when those expectations aren't being met. And then taking it to the next step of saying, you are currently not meeting expectations and you and I have got to fix this. 
And we got to fix it on a reasonable timeline, depending on who you are, what the problem is and what the level is. That might be a few weeks and it might be a couple months, but it's not a year. So going in there, clear expectations that we're going to fix this together. And then over the course of that period, you know, some people like to use performance improvement plans. Some people don't. I don't think it matters. What really matters is that the manager is having those direct conversations and then writing them down because people have different ways of hearing and you need to have respect for people who maybe aren't hearing you and need to see it in writing. And then sometimes it turns around and sometimes it doesn't, but it's the manager's responsibility to say, you know what, as I told you two months ago, you're not meeting expectations. We've been in this together. We've done the coaching. We've done the side-by-side working. We've done the feedback. We're at a point now where you haven't turned around and we got to wrap this up and this is going to be the end of your employment at this company. And lastly, who do you think you've learned the most from in your professional career or who pops to mind that's kind of had a huge outsized impact on who you are, how you approach work and kind of how you've achieved the career that you've achieved? There's so many people who've been on Team Ana over the course of many, many years. It would be hard to boil it down to just one. One of the reasons that I I met Asana for so many years and plan to stay here for many more years is Dustin Moskowitz and the things that he's taught me, the things that he's pushed me on, things that I've learned from him even when he wasn't teaching. I talked about the learning that the opposite of my story might be true came from him. Another person is Kelly Battles, who is a CFO I worked with many, many years ago and who became a friend, a mentor, a coach, a pusher, and always there to remind me of being true to myself. I've worked for other CEOs who really served as like, I almost feel like my personal marketing person, right? Like the, my personal chief marketing officer is like the people that you call when you're in the car and you're driving to an interview. And you're like, can you just remind me why you think I'm great? Because I need to hear it as I'm going towards this interview. Just on the point of Dustin, given I think that Asana is now the company you've been at the longest, is there anything he's taught you that you think he might be surprised to know? I've been in it with Dustin for a long time. So even when he's teaching me things that are making me very mad at him, I generally come around and I learn and then I'm able to acknowledge it. And it's one of the great things about working for the same person for a long, long time. You develop a level of trust. And maybe some humor in, 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 in the tough moments. Yeah, I'm, and I'm hugely biased in that I've been at the same company for, I don't know, 14 plus years now. And I think that long tenures with a small group of people is very underrated. And building on top of that level of trust and understanding is underrated. And really unique things happen when a small group of people has the chance to work together for a long time. And it rarely happens. Certainly over the last decade, it feels like it happens less. I get that. At Asana, I feel like I hit the jackpot to work for somebody and with a group of people, a small group of people over the course of many, many years with a shared commitment to a mission and an opportunity to use the products that you're building and selling every day. It's just the combination of those things it feels like one in a million to me. And yeah, it, it makes me very confident in continuing to commit to the long term here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the conversation. It was wonderful. Great to be here. 